I believe there's a crisis in our land. And I know what many of you are thinking when you watch news or you talk to people about their aches and pains and the problems of everyday life. It seems like crisis is everywhere and everybody's in crisis. Nobody's in crisis. But I'm, I'm going to use the term crisis in a way where I think we've reached a stage uh, just culturally We're at the end of a sequence of events where the trend of the future depends on how we respond now. And the crisis I want to address, I think we have a crisis in how the average person in America and even the church views authority and authority figures. From parents to politicians to coaches and to pastors. These days to me there's a a massive lack of trust in those who are on top of hierarchies or organizations. And I think there's good reason when you have a government and you have a news media that want nothing to do but fight. It's all they want to do now. There's this constant political tug of war for power. Everything seems to be tainted with politics. From NFL football to shaving cream. You can't get, you can't get rid of it. And it is bound to turn every normal person off and in turn doubt the intentions of the newsmakers, the lawgivers, our elections, and even the policies that are passed. Who can believe? Who can you believe? What can you believe anymore? When divorce rates are now officially reached 41% for first-time marriages and 50% for all divorces, it tends to cause the children of divorce to see their parents with a distrustful eye. What is unconditional love? Does it even exist? Why not stay single and play the field? It seems more fun and less costly. And then take religious leadership in America. While the average amount of money for a senior pastor in America is less than 45000 a year, the big name pastors get all the attention. Here's some research on the five. These are the five richest pastors in the United States. And after looking at the numbers, you'll see why people mistrust the man behind the pulpit these days. Creflo Dollar comes in at number five. He only earns $32 million a year. Joel Osteen's at a meager $40 million a year. Benny Hinn at $43 million a year. This is salary. Pat Robertson's only raking in $100 million a year. And T.D. Jakes Poor guy, he only makes $147 million a year. And that doesn't include speakers like Stephen Furtick, Joyce Meyer, or the defrock James McDonald. They're all still making bank. A lot of money. And just think. Jesus, the servant king they claim to represent, only had the robe off his back when he died. The one the soldiers gambled for. No place lay his head. No wonder why people wonder if they can trust pastors. How do you know I am not another clever fraud hiding behind this pulpit trying to take you for all your worth? How do you, how do you know? If you love Christ, the answer to that question should matter to you. Because he loves his church. The church is his bride. It is also the living witness of God on earth. And for the church to be a 
really what I would say, be a bright light, a witness to Christ on earth. It takes both godly leadership, faithful, godly leadership, and what I would say, responsive and fruitful membership. It takes both leadership and membership. And I call this the proper give and take of a healthy church or a church that's alive. So if you can stand with me, we're going to read chapter 2 together, 1 through 16. And the title of this is Give the Give and Take of an Active and Alive Church. And as we read this, see if you can, see if you can take from this passage what's important in church life. Starting in verse 1, chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. You may be seated. Last week, we began this study. We've handed out the Bible journals, and so the purpose of that is so you can both follow along and hopefully bring this with you if you got some spare time while you're waiting in your car or at a coffee shop. We began last week saying how the Thessalonian church was planted by Paul, Silas, and Timothy in the second missionary journey. They're heading up Asia. They were called over by a vision for Macedonia. They came to Philippi, and they landed in Thessalonica, where Paul was welcomed. So there he planted the church. But after probably about six months, most scholars speculate, he was driven out of town by an angry mob. So this book is a letter written from Corinth back to the city of Thessalonica, to the church, 
to basically encourage them to keep the faith. That's the objective. Keep the faith. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Continues with the same sentiment. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you, it was not in vain. It was not in vain. That means it was not an empty endeavor. But it was a work of God. After the church was planted in Thessalonica, and then the three amigos left, it still thrived. It was real. It was productive. It was living. It was the pulsating body of Christ. It was a real church. In our day, I'm telling you, there's a lot of churches across these fruited plains, but not every church across these fruited plains is alive. In fact, more times than not, your average church is play-acting. Bunch of actors. They may have big buildings, beautiful stained glass. They may have large budgets. They may have custom-made programs, hyped-up miracle crusades, jamming music bands, but many of the leadership and the congregations are nothing more than zombies with dead hearts. From crystal cathedrals to megachurch astrodomes, the church in modern-day America has become more of an enterprise a business than a living organism. And I'd say even as we consider expanding our church building, we need to realize that what matters to God first and foremost is we have two things in place that matter most. The proper give and the proper take needs to take place for our church, Kent City Baptist Church, to be alive, to be a place where his spirit is actually working. And from this passage, in the, uh, chapter 2, I believe the give is in reference to the leadership. Paul's going to talk all about his leadership, his faithful leadership. And so the first give is primarily to those who pastor, those who preach, those who lead the church. They need to be faithful messengers. And then we're going to talk quickly later about the take. And the take is simple, to be a fruitful member you just you need to receive what has been given. And when those two things are in place, the Word of God is alive. It's alive. Your church is not existing in vain for empty reasons. So let's first talk about the faithful character and what Paul's going to describe, what we need to look for, somebody really behind the pulpit leading or out in the streets leading. If you were to take a composite of all the letters that were written in the New Testament by both Paul, Peter, and John, one of the biggest problems that kept arising in the early church was the infiltration of these false prophets and super apostles. They would infiltrate the early church. Letters were written because the apostle who helped plant the church, usually Paul, left it to the local leadership, and he said, there's a very present danger when I leave. He said in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. In other words, they'll look like real pastors. They will sound like powerful prophets and preachers. Some will even talk like that. But behind the pomp, Behind the circumstance, behind the shadow and makeup, they are savage, soul-stealing wolves. 
The first time I met a real wolf, I will never forget it, caught me completely off guard. Michelle and I were coming out of church, the church I was saved back in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And there were some friends after the church that came up to us and they said, hey, we're having a Bible study tonight at our house. And we have a great guy. This, we met this great teacher and he's going to lead this Bible study. And he's conducting a really interesting uh, discussion. And because you both graduated Moody Bible Institute, we know you're Bible students and you'd love, I'm sure, to come join us. So we had nothing else to do that night, and we decided to go. When we walked into the house, there were 10 families, five of which were from our church, and five I've never met before. But we were warmly welcomed, and we were introduced to this tall, smiling, charming, blonde-haired man. He's about 35 to 40. His voice was deep. His cadence was perfect. The group sang a few songs, and we knew. And then the guy started teaching. He used a lot of Greek words, a lot of cross-referencing. But he was promoting a theological position called annihilationism. Or annihilism. Yeah, annihilationism, where non-believers, he would teach non-believers don't go to hell when they die. He would teach that they're just annihilated or extinguished by the grave. I was... Um, I took a lot of theology at Moody, and we talked a lot about hell and the and eschatology end of things. And uh, so I, I raised my hand while this guy's talking. I raised my hand. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I'm kind of outspoken when I get mad sometimes. It's a bad trait I had. I said, wait a minute. You're promoting an old heresy that the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses, that they teach. I don't believe this. And it got quiet. Like, like, I shouldn't disagree with this guy. He's a very important man. And he stopped, and he put on a, uh, you know, a plastic grin, and he looked my way. And there, you could feel fire simmering under. He had, like, dark eyes, and they're dilating to a pinpoint. You could, and he looked at me, and here's what he said. I understand your error because I used to think like that too. Then he said, but you're, you're soon going to come to the real tr truth if you just stick with me. You'll learn what really Scripture believes. I looked around the room and honestly everybody's nodding their heads, almost zombie-ish. Yes, yes. You too will come to know the truth. I said to Michelle, let's, get, let's leave, let's go. So we exited very awkwardly out of there. Once out the door, we took a deep breath, and she goes, what just happened? What was that? I said, well, that was a wolf. That's a stealer. Sadly, when we went back to the church, we didn't see those five couples come back for a while. Because this new leader was trying to start a home church, start a new movement. And he was happy to steal people away from a very mature, loving church that was already involved in their lives. People like new things, and the wolf is happy to give it. Paul wrote this book for the same reason, to warn people about the wolves that are coming in Dodge and not let them in. And so what he's going to do is he's going to give his example of what to look for, what not to look for, and what to look for in a genuine 
pastor. And I think you're obligated to do the same thing. If I'm not this guy, drive us out of Dodge. That's your job. The first thing he's going to talk about is what he is not. In what Paul, the way Paul describes a faithful messenger, he says a faithful messenger is not an actor. He's not an actor. Like the wolf Michelle and I met, even though he smiled and was charming, could speak well, his heart was dark. His heart was dark. An actor is a person who wears a mask. Look at verse 3. Paul says, our appeal, and you'll see, he'll say, does not, so he's giving the nots, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Time and time again, it's interesting, about six times, Paul is going to refer to their first-hand witness of Paul's life. Like, look at chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Towards the end of it, he goes, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. And then when they're driv- driven out of Dodge, he's, re- he's helping them remember. Do you remember what we're like? Look at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, what we were like. Verse 2. You know we were tre- uh, shamefully treated, as you know. Verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Verse 9. For you remember, brother, so he's... He's saying, guys, do you remember who we were? We're not like these false wolves. You know us. You know me. You know I'm not playing games. I'm not putting on a front is what Paul's saying, and hopefully I'm not either here at Kent City Baptist. But I'll tell you, that's what false apostles do. They play games. Jude chapter 12 says, false prophets are clouds without rain. Blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and they're going to be uprooted. And so this idea is a farmer. Here's a farmer. He's trying to, he's trying to plant a crop, but he's got no rain. It's, it's a drought. And then he looks to the, to the west, and he sees a dark cloud coming in. Oh, he says to himself, yes, finally the rain is coming. But as it comes, it's blown past not one nourishing single droplet of water falls and it just moves on by and a poor farmer is still longing to be nourished. Have you ever really watched Joel Osteen? He looks good. Like a rain-filled cloud. He's he's got a $1,000 Armani suit. He's got perfectly styled hair. He's got big brown fluttering eyes and he talks like that. Brothers and sisters, he says the sweetest words that mean nothing. He's a passing rain cloud. Just believe in yourself. You can be the best person you want to be. Ain't that right? Oh, that's nice, isn't it? And then the cloud goes by, and you're like, what does it mean? I don't know. I don't know. I want some water. The second uh, not we find in verse 4. We are not here to please men. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. This is a dangerous job. He tests our hearts. We're countable. 
Paul later in Timothy says, we're not ear ticklers saying things to soothe the delights of men and women. We're God pleasers. It's hard not to be a people pleaser in this role. You want people to like you. You really do. I've told you that often. I get scared. I just want you to, I don't want you to fall asleep. You want to be funny. You want to be alive. There's a lot to be said for a person that keeps you awake. It causes you to lean in and open your mouth because they want to hear the next word. You want, to be, you want to be a showman to some degree. But Paul says in Galatians 1.10, if my sole purpose is to please men, this is an amazing verse, a verse I try to live by. If my sole purpose is to please men, I should not. I am not a servant of Christ. Many pastors, and me included, like to be liked. We like to be liked. In some ways, knowing what will appeal to the listener makes us good at what we do. But eventually, this desire to please will come crashing into the hard, rock-hard face of the gospel because the gospel is designed to confront the things we like, believe it or not. Our passions and our worldly desires. The gospel is in contrast to it. And people don't like that about the gospel. Did you know that? Paul says this about the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1.23. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That's why many preachers abandon the gospel and start talking about nice things like being healthy, wealthy, and wise. And now you know what the rave is for pastors? is to be more progressive, fighting for the marginalized and the victims of society, and they're turning the cross into a political campaign slogan because people like it. Being culturally acceptable is much easier than preaching this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. People don't like that. Verse 5 gives another knot. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is saying we don't use our job to leverage people for greed. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God's our witness. That means, I'm not lying to you, God's witnessing our motive. He looks at motives. And so verse 5 said the third not is we are not to leverage this job for greed. Some people of that day found itinerant preaching. They go from new church to new church as a very lucrative living. It kind of had a cushy life because they would get money from the people who are working hard. And so Paul has a contrasted view of how he planted churches. Look at verse 9. He says, you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we worked hard. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. With uh, fledgling churches, the ones he just planted, he made it his objective not to be a burden. If you read his accounts in Acts, and when he started Thessal Thessalonians, they were receiving money from the Philippian church that he planted earlier, but he also was a tent maker. A tent maker was a guy who would stitch animal skins to make tents that he sold to people. He would work and then preach. 
It is not that he is denying pastors that they should get paid a salary. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's what he's talking about. But when he's talking about new churches, planting new churches in the realm of non-believers, he never wanted to be a burden to them, to live off of their back. He would rather endure hardship, he says in 1 Corinthians. I would rather endure hardship than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Not so the false teacher in a wolf. Their whole objective was, and still is, to get rich off the backs of the poor. $147 million a year. Why does a preacher need $147 million a year? How do you know if you're being taken to the bank by the false preacher? It's really easy. Their lifestyle is one where they live in far more luxury than the average income of the person in the church they're serving. There's a huge discrepancy. That's how you can tell if somebody's using pastoring to make bank. If a pastor's driving a Lamborghini as he cruises out of his million-dollar home, heading to his private jet to go on a three-week vacation at his private seaside condo in Florida, and most of the people in the congregation are working two jobs just to build a swing set in the backyard of their double-wide plot, something perverse is going on. I think the saying should go like this. The pastor with the most toys does not win. Oh, no. He sins. That's how it should go. Jesus is really direct about this. And uh, he's talking to the servant of the master not to take advantage of his position. And he says... Blessed is the faithful servant when his master comes and finds him working. Woe to the servant who says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards and accumulates many things. The master will come when the servant doesn't expect him and will receive a severe beating. I won't read the part where Jesus also says he'll be torn into many pieces. That's not too nice, so I won't read that. And as a pastor, that's really scary. Scary. And then the final not is found in verse 6. Nor did we seek glory. That means we're not here for praise. From people. This job is not for bolstering my significance to be seen as important by others, to have the place of honor at feast to have the best seats and social gatherings, to have your own parking space next to the door of the church, to have a king-sized golden chair up on the platform, or even to be called reverend. That's not the point. And a lot of pastors love that stuff. Why do human beings, why do human beings, why do any of us want to always be recognized to be seen as the most important in any room we go to? It's a weird it's a weird perversity human beings have. We go out of our way to be noticed. The honest reality is that this job, this job right here, is custom fit for glory seekers. It's a perfect job to get glory. Just think. Every week people are, in some sense, required to listen to you as you wax eloquent. They come to you for approval and advice. 
and feel blessed if you shake their hand. And the human ego loves this. But as John Piper said, that is what makes this job so dangerous. We are asked by God to bring glory to Christ, and we have been put in a perfect position to steal it. Ooh. I'm to direct people to Christ, but if I let it stop here, I'm doing just the opposite for which I've been hired. It's very dangerous. So, I would say this, pray for your pastors. Glory is seductive. What is he then? If these are the things that he's not, is there a picture of what he is? Yes, what he is is to be, you're going to see a mother and a father. Two pictures that are affectionate and personal. In verse 7, he says, we are gentle among you. In verse 6, he said, we could have been apostles with power, come in power and make demands. But look, we were gentle. And the first picture he gives is like a nursing mother. And then he's going to talk about a caring father. The church is a family, not a business. In some ways, personally, I'll just be honest with you, that's why I think, that's why I, I sometimes shy away from a suit and tie because I think sometimes a suit and tie distances a pastor from people. Some people like it because it brings authority to the word. More and more, I think it separates a little bit. When my dad would come home from work, he'd take off his tie and put on his favorite grass-cutting shirt so he could be one of us again. He wouldn't treat me when he came home like Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey. Hello there, my dear son. I'm going to my study. I'll talk to you at 5.30. Too many pastors act like Lord Grantham. Yes, I have got times, very little time. I'm doing a lot of study today. He uses the first picture of a nursing mother. You cannot get more tender than that. Look at 7b to 8. But we are gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately, desire, affectionately desirous of you. What? We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you've become very dear to us. There is no harder or more involved job than being a nursing mother. Caring for a crying baby at 2 o'clock in the morning. Staying home, preparing a place where love happens while the husband's doing his work and then entering the messy small world of a child. It is quite humbling to be a mother. And it may be the most uncelebrated and massively important job in our society. And this is the picture Paul's using. A person who's willing to give their life, their strength for the weakness of another. This is what a faithful messenger is to be like. Entering in, living life, being vulnerable, willing to take calls late into the evening, getting in the middle of disputes between the children or the congregants, and not charging a thing. All you want is a growing, happy brood and to get that, often it will cost your life, and that's where it comes in to be hard. I'll tell you what, though, the false prophet and wolf won't do this. They don't like this. It's too far beneath them to get so personal. I don't want you to know me. 
and they put on a front. Because this job could be vulnerable and messy because I'm a person too. I'm God's child as well. And we have flaws. Maybe, just maybe, the best way to tell if a messenger is genuine, maybe, just maybe, the best way to tell is if this person up here is not a fake is they like their people no matter how messy it gets. I've heard so many times, I can't, I can't even count it from pastors who say, you know, I'd love this job if it weren't for the people. No, this job is the people. It's the people. Human beings, every person's made in the image of God. Who are we to treat them as if they are a means to my end? Then Paul talks about a father and how he deals with his own family. While the mother brings personal care and nurturing, a father shows the child how to walk, how to live a godly life. Look at verses 11 and 12. He's talking about their own, his own witness in verse 10. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. So he's talking about we live right before you know us. And then he says in verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. Wow, and glory. A father's job is exhorting, telling a child how to walk, how to do something and do it, and then encouraging, giving the child the confidence to walk in it. You can do it. While a mom lovingly cares and builds a person from the inside up, a father pushes a child to risk. Try. Overcome that fear. In the same way, a good pastor will nurse the hearts of a congregation, but he will also push them to have courageous faith. We can do it. We can do it. Our seminaries where we train pastors are top-heavy in study and light on mothering and fathering, on relationships. I personally believe the best training I got for this job was being raised by a mom and dad of six kids who constantly tried to raise us in a home with peace. It's hard work. It's hard work. I, I'll never forget fighting with my sisters and my dad saying, Chris, you never hit a girl. Or my sisters fighting each other and my mom saying, Steph, give Gina back her clothes, okay? Or my brother Don being caught stealing from school and my dad saying, hey, you still need to love your brother. He's your brother. So we need to ask, we're going to have the first thing in place. Are the pastors we have just good actors, or are they family members? And I think we as pastors have to ask that all the time. Are we just playing a game, or do we really like the people? And then you have the take. What's the take? I'm not going to go deep into it, but it's really simple. If you have the first thing in place, then to have the a church that's alive, you need to also have the second thing, a membership that's fruitful, that's, that's receptive. is like good soil where the seed that's planted will start being grown. Take this 
word as if it's from God. Look at verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, the implication is you know who we are. You know we're not, we're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. If you can trust us enough, then the word you heard from us, accept it, not as just the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. And then when you accept it, that's when it works. That's when God's made alive in a church. It's the word of God that is lived by faith. If the leadership is not play acting, but sincerely trying to sacrificially love and lead the congregation, then take the word they are sharing as if it's from God himself. And then, and only then, will power start coursing through this body and we'll be, we won't be doing things in vain. Just for empty show. Paul uses three words to do this. He uses the word receive. He uses the word accept. And then he's going to, in verse 14, use the word imitate. I spelled it wrong, but I did it for a purpose. See how the second M is like the first M? That's what imitate means. Just as the pastor is. Actually, I didn't mean to do that. I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a misprint. But it's perfect, see? And so what, what do you do? Receive the word. Accept the word. Receive the word. Receive is a passive word, which means, you know what? I'm going to let it land. I'm going to let it land. Accept the word means it's more than just from a man. I, I believe that's what God wants me to know. And then imitate. Look at verse 14. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ that are in Christ Jesus. Not only of us, but of the churches that went before you. You're doing what they did. Continue it. And then not only that, because they did what they did, they suffered. It's sort of like Revelation 3.20. Listen to Revelation 3.20. Jesus says this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Will you let me in? If anyone hears my voice, that's the word receive. Receiving is hearing. If anyone hears my voice and then opens the door, that's accepting. Come on in. Yes, I will come into him. That's the power. That's what verse 13 means when it says, which is at work in you. He'll come in and eat with you and he with me. The word is the, the preaching of the word by a faithful messenger is Jesus knocking. You hearing it is you open a door and then, yeah. All right, come on in. And you don't come in because, man, he was so funny when he knocked on that door. <laughs> Boy, he knocked on the door like nobody else. No, knock, you knocked it. Here's the word. What are you going to do with it? I, uh, I recently had, um, I heard this story about Martin Luther. I like to read books on Martin Luther. In the very last sermon he ever gave, it was um, three days before he died. He's heading back to his hometown of Eisenburn and Wittenberg. Isn't that how you say it, Jared? Wittenberg? Doesn't that sound good? Nine. Ike. Anyhow. And uh, he was in bad shape, and he thought he had maybe a couple weeks to live, maybe a few days before he, he liked to say it like this. I know soon I'm going to be delivering this fat, this fat doctor to the maggots, is what he said. He's a very nice guy. Here's what his message was three days before he died. 
He says, How highly honored and richly blessed we are to know the God that speaks with us and feeds us with his word. How blessed we are to know the God that speaks with us and feeds us with his word. Then he goes on to say, but there's barbarous, godless people who only say, what? Baptism, sacrament, God's word? He's saying, that's it? What about Joseph's pants? It is the devil in the world who makes the high personages. That means the people in high position, the super apostles, the false prophets. It's the devil in the world that makes the emperors and kings oblivious to such thing as God's word and causes them to allow themselves to be so grossly duped and fooled and be spattered with filth by these first-class rascals and liars, the Pope and his tonsured shavelings, people in high position, because what they were selling, listen to what they were selling. We should listen to God's word, which tells us that he's our schoolmaster, and we have nothing to do with Joseph's pants or the Pope juggling tricks. So you're asking, what do you mean, Joseph's pants? that mean? Back during that time, they would sell relics. So for instance, the Catholic Church and the church at that day would sell things like the thorn from Christ's crown, and if you say 10 prayers to that, that will give you power. But there was a rumor going around that somebody found Joseph's pants, the father of Jesus' pants. And if a church could get Joseph's pants, anybody that looked upon those pants would be healed from any disease. And he's saying, that's all people want these days. They, they don't want the word of God. They want something else. They want more. Give me power. Give me, uh, give me something more than that. Give me something that gives me power of my illnesses, that gives me success and wealth. And Luther said, this is nonsense. The true power of God is by a humble pastor who delivers the word. That's where power is. That's where power in it. And then when it comes in you, you're going to start living. And one of the ways you can tell is, it says here, is you will live the same way the churches have gone before you and even suffer. Jesus said it like this. Jesus said, go ahead to the next slide. I have given them your word. He's talking to his father right before he died. I have given them your word. Who? The disciples. And the world has hated them. Why? Because we're part of his family. He says, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. Don't be surprised by it. That's why Paul, at the end of Thessalonians here, says, you know what? In verse 15, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and just please God and pose all mankind. But don't worry, wrath has come. Don't worry. So my question for you is, number one, pray for us. Are you praying for the pastors? Because we have a huge obligation where we're tested by God by what we say. But number two, do you, do you take it and run with it and imitate it? If we have both of these things in place in this church, we'll be doing just fine. We'll be growing in the power of God. We'll be alive. Or do you just want to show there's other apostles out there, and they're really good at what they do. They put on good shows. They're making good money, too, which is a sign that they must be doing something right. 